Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing great today, Tim. I hope everyone out there who's listening, I hope they're doing great as well. I think that the conversation that we have coming up is something that's truly unique, right? Because we always like to take advantage of having actual law enforcement officials on the show to discuss an open case for a missing person and discuss it in very candid terms. So can't wait for the listeners to hear this. A lot of information is in this and really just a lot of respect for our guest today. And Tim, I have a lot of respect for you and I'd like to know how you're doing. Good. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm doing fine over here today. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to um, to introduce this conversation with Lieutenant Jason Hayes of the LeGrand Police Department. And that's over there in Oregon. And today we're speaking about Leona Kinsey's disappearance from October 25th, 1999. She was 46 at the time of her disappearance. She has brown hair, brown eyes. She's 5'2 and weighs 110 pounds. And she was last seen at her home in LaGrande, Oregon. And if you've got any information, call the LaGrande Police Department at 541-963-1017. And just a big shout out to Shayna and Tates and everyone else at Light the Way for introducing us to Lieutenant Hayes. And they are a great advocacy organization. You can check them out at lightthewaymissing.com. And Tim, before we get to this conversation with Lieutenant Jason Hayes, which contains ad breaks, how would someone listen to this without those ad breaks, plus every single other episode that we've done on every single other show that we've done? (laughs) That's a lot. Um, Well, listeners can subscribe to Missing Premium on Apple Podcasts, but if you're not on Apple, you can go to missing.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. As you mentioned, everything is ad-free. You also get early new releases and our weekly bonus show where we go in-depth on some of the mysteries we cover. And speaking of those ad breaks, we're going to have to get a couple of them out of the way here before we return with our guest, Lieutenant Jason Hayes. Welcome to the podcast, Lieutenant Jason Hayes. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For sure. Thank you for joining us. I just want to like, really, truly uh, express our appreciation for you coming on the show to talk about this, because while it's not exactly rare to have investigators directly related to a case and a story talk with us, it's not very common to have that happen. You have so many details that you can't say. So I guess a lot of people just kind of err on the side of, I'm not going to do this because I don't want you know to say the wrong thing. So we truly appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, so how long have you been working on Leona Kinsey's disappearance case? I've been with the police agency for 25 years, uh, but I was not one of the original investigators. Um, at our agency, our investi- uh, our detective division is rotational. So usually detectives go in every three years, uh, spend a three-year rotation, and then go back to patrol for those who want to. Um, so I really got involved in this case around 2009, 10 in there. Um, and then I was kind of like the one of the last persons standing with our agency because this is a, you know, we're talking about a case that's almost 24 years old. And so I really took it on uh, 
in around 2010, but really started steamrolling with it with what I could do and what loose ends I felt were there. And, and of course, Carolyn, uh, Leona's daughter being, you know, really the motivator for me uh, to keep this thing alive and go um, and try to f- get answers for Carolyn and her family and, and also find closure for us um, as well. So, you know, I'm about 10 years into this case of where I've, you know, taken it on and, and done what I can. Okay, and we'll definitely talk about the details of Leona's story, but you said uh, tying up loose ends, and just without being specific to this case, from an investigation or an investigative standpoint or perspective, how do you even identify loose ends just in an investigation that you're coming into? Yeah, well, especially a case like Leona's that is has gone on year after year is fresh eyes. Um, I like to come in, look at these from fresh eyes and see what's been done, what hasn't been done, but also be systematic and really listen to like, in this particular case, uh, Carolyn, um, and what does she see is us, you know, what have we not been doing that we should be doing and what are others saying you know, that we should be doing. I, I think it's important that we take constructive criticism. We look at this like, okay, are we missing something here? And then also being inclusive of other agencies to help us. Well, I am not beyond asking for help. Uh, we're an agency of 19 sworn people, uh, two detectives, and being in rural Eastern Oregon, we need help. And, you know, in, in the details, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of that help that I received, um, and particularly this case is like, who are people that were interviewed uh, in 1999, early 2000s, but need re-interviewed because of some of the complications of the case, which I'll talk about when we get there. When was your department first made aware of Leona's disappearance? We were first made aware on October 28th of 1999 in that the first person to report Leona is missing was one of her good friends by the name of Nancy. And then shortly after that, another close friend of Leona's by the name of Lonnie, he also made a report. And then Carolyn subsequently made a report as well. Uh, But the first one was from her friend Nancy. And we were able to establish the last time Leona was seen was uh, three days prior. So that would have been October 25th of 1999 in LeGrand. Okay. And you just mentioned LeGrand and you're wearing your LeGrand police fleece, which is a really cool. Um, Can you describe the area a little bit for us, like a sense of the population, a sense of the community? Yeah. uh, LeGrand is really a neat spot. It's in Northeast Oregon. It's on the base of the foot uh, or at the foothills of the Blue Mountains. We have a population of 12,000. We have Eastern Oregon University that's here that has a student population during the school year of about 2,000 on-campus students. Uh, so during the school year, our population can, you know, be more closer to 14,000. Our entire county only has 27,000. So LaGrange has a majority of the, the county population. Uh, agriculture and timber are biggest industries here, as well as the university. Okay. And uh, what, what did Leona do for work? Uh, Leona, she was a she worked for herself as a landscaper. Uh, she did yard work and landscaping in our community. Can you talk about who she was last seen with? Well, so it was her her closest friends. Now, 
like we don't know exactly who was the last friend to see her, but her closest friends, Nancy and Lonnie, um, were two of the ones that she was closest with at the time. Who, which one of them saw her last, but it was about the same time. They were all inconsistent that it was around the 25th of October. And is there a timeline that you can take us through in the maybe the days leading up to her disappearance and the day of and how the investigation got started? Yeah, so I'll be honest with you guys. For over 20 years, we've been very sensitive to Carolyn and the family. But I finally, within the last couple of years, the last year really is talking honestly about Leona because it matters when talking about the complications we had early on. So we had a lot of barriers right off the bat. um, And it was because Leona was heavily involved in um, the sale and use of methamphetamine. And she was classified as a a medium-sized drug dealer in LeGrand. The complications are is when we're trying to talk to those that are closest to her they were all afraid to say something by because they thought they would implicate themselves in their own drug involvement and and illicit drug culture, um, and so we had to break those barriers that you know we're not interested in that at all. Uh, we're interested in finding the truth about Leona and her disappearance. Period, um, and so. You know, the history coming up to the day that she disappeared, I mean, I will tell you what I think my theory is, although I don't have tunnel vision at all. Uh, all all things are, um, are open to me, but I look at what is the most reasonable explanation for her disappearance based on the information that I have right now. And so a little bit of her past was a little bit hazy because people didn't want to talk about it. When you say that you're not interested in the methamphetamine aspect of this, you just want to find answers, does that mean if anyone was involved in that methamphetamine production and distribution and they have answers, that they won't be facing any repercussions for the drug activity? That's correct. That's absolutely correct. One of the things is I've done interviews. In fact, we've done about 30, we've interviewed about 34 people so far in this case. Um, And some of them multiple times we've interviewed. And the reason I have re-interviewed recently is I was hoping that if they did know something that they weren't up front with 23 years ago, that maybe now enough time's gone by where whatever fears they had about their own involvement in drug activity wouldn't be there anymore, and maybe they would be more th- more forthcoming with information. What I found is is information that they provided me or provided our department in 1999 and 2000, 2001, 2002, early on in the investigation is still consistent today. You know, with the exception of the person that I think is the person of interest in this, uh, that's just, you know, we can get to that point when the time's right. You will find I'm going to be pretty transparent in this interview. Uh, I don't think it serves anything to not share information at this point. We've tried other things. And look, we're 23 years later and we still haven't solved this case. So I'm just totally transparent now, hoping that maybe somebody will take comfort by my transparency and our honesty and will provide us something tangible that will lead us in the right path. This case has been very difficult because, 
you know, when we when you ask me or we talk about her actual disappearance, there's not a breadcrumb trail on this one. Like we have in other missing person cases. Uh, some of that's due to we don't have all the technology that we have you know, had in 1999 that we have now, uh, cell phones, video secure, uh, security, video footages, things like that, instant access to credit cards and transactions and stuff. So, okay. So I take it there's no, uh, cell phone, uh, activity or, or anything like that. Correct. Yes. Okay. So is it your belief that Leona went missing from her residence or is, is there, is there somewhere that you believe she went missing from? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly what I think. So we're going to get into the weeds here a little bit on this case now. So why Leona's friends, Nancy, Lonnie, and then her daughter reported her missing was is she hadn't been seen for a couple of days. But what was weird about that is her belongings, like her purse and stuff, were still in the house. And her dogs, uh, she had two dogs and a cat, and they were outside, which was atypical because she normally so when you look at the normal habits of leona these were not there were some indicators like wait this normally doesn't happen and that's what prompted them to make a report and so once the report was made uh her friend nancy found leona's car in in legrand but at a grocery store parking lot um, and that became interesting uh, as this investigation went on, because what we didn't know right off the bat, but we later learned, is that Leona would do her drug deals at this particular parking lot of this particular grocery store. What it looks like to me, my best reasonable explanation of what I think happened is, is she was home, she received a phone call from somebody, drove her car to the grocery store parking lot, met in somebody else's car, and that was the end of it. We never heard from her again. We did uh, search her car and her residence, and nothing of suspicion was found at that time. Everything was orderly. So it makes me believe that she she met somebody that she knew and got into their car, and and from there, we, we don't know. I, I will tell you some more theories I have based on the information I've received. Was her getting into the car, in your opinion, something she was doing willingly? You know, I can't say. What I can say about that is, is there was nothing to indicate there was a struggle inside of her car. And her car was locked when we found it uh, and processed it. But as far as, you know, did somebody abduct her and grab her and put her into another car? Don't know. Right. And uh, it's your belief that this was intended to be a quick trip for Leona, having left her animals out? Correct. And leaving her purse and, and, and other stuff at her house that she would normally take with her, that's my belief. Okay. And uh, w was there any surveillance video or anything of that uh, parking lot? No. No, uh, no. And the grocery store was Albertsons was the name of it. Video surveillance stuff was not... I mean, it was there, right, in 1999, but not as prevalent as it is now. I mean, we make a lot of cases right now because not only do businesses have it, but so do homes. And as a police officer, I love that. Uh, it's just unfortunate that we didn't have that kind of technology or access to that kind of technology that could have helped in 1999 help solve this. And would now be a good time to discuss the individual Juan Pina Lama? 
we can discuss him anytime you want. So now is as good as any. So when I looked at this case, you look for common denominators. I will tell you before we talk about Juan, I will say that the most reasonable thing is, is Leona was taken against her will and she was murdered. I think that's the most reasonable thing. When you have a homicide, now again, I'm not tunnel vision on this, all all things are open. But when I think about Leona's case, and if it is a homicide, we have two barriers. One is usually you need a body and you need somebody talking about the body. And I have neither of those, except for some inferences made by Juan Pena. So through all the interviews that we've done, what I have found is that the fingers mostly point at Juan Pena and that Juan was not only Leona's on and off again boyfriend, but he was also her dealer. And uh, those in the illicit drug trade said that he was directly connected to the Mexican cartel. I was also told that uh, the consistency of the information I received was Leona owed the Mexican cartel money, and that's why she disappeared. Now, I worked in the drug task force for two years, and if the drug cartel was involved, that's problematic for me because they are experts on making people disappear without a trace. But Juan Pinalamas, he he was interviewed shortly after Leona's disappearance. He gave a full statement to the investigator at the time, and he denied having any knowledge about her disappearing. He didn't have anything to do with it. But in the same breath, he said that he doesn't use drugs, never dealt drugs, which is a complete lie. When you have enough people calling him a drug dealer and saying that he's using drugs and he's the only one saying that, no, I'm not. Yeah, it it doesn't pass the test with me. So uh, Juan was involved in some criminal activity unassociated with this case. He did give an interview. He agreed to take a polygraph, but he failed to show for the polygraph. That gives me some, hmm, makes me think. And then uh, he was arrested on some other crimes. And then ultimately he was deported to Mexico in 2006. I wanted to take another run at him but we were having a hard time finding him. I just recently, we think that we have, we would call a proof of life. Uh, We believe that he, at least as a year ago, he was still alive and he does live in Mexico. So I'm working with the FBI, uh, who's working with the Mexican government on, okay, what's next? There's problems with that. One is he's already given us an interview saying he's had no involvement. It would be easy for him to say that again. So I want a polygraph. They don't do polygraphs in Mexico. So logistically, I'm working with the FBI trying to figure out what is the best way to approach this. And that story is yet to be told. We'll see. But that's a lead. A loose end that I've had is, is where is Juan? Is he still alive? And how can I contact him? We really had struggles with this, but we've we had some agents in some border patrol. I've had some help from the border patrol that have really stepped up and helped lately. And at least I know he's still alive and and we have reason to believe he's still in Mexico. So that's a little bit about Juan. Uh, he inferred to four different people that he didn't kill Leona, but he has knowledge of it and inferred that he 
hired the Mexican cartel to do something to her, to make her disappear. All four of these people will say they didn't believe him because he was an idiot. Uh, he was a braggart. Uh, he was a man of small stature that liked to make himself seem more important than what he really is. But here's what I say. He said it to four different people at four different times. It's not like they were all sitting a camp around a campfire and he said this and then four people heard it. No, he told it to his ex-wife. He told it to his ex-girlfriend and he told it to two different friends all on different occasions. So I don't have probable cause to arrest him. But he is the only link I have to, in my theory, is to what happened to her. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Do you have any knowledge as to the context of the conversation when he told these people? Because when you said his ex-wife and his ex-girlfriend, it made me think that he was saying it in a threatening way, like, stay in line or I'll do to you what I did to Leona. But you don't think that's the case? No, that's not the case. So we had really good interviews with all four people that he made these inferences to. And again, it goes back to they didn't even believe him. They were not threatened by him. Although his ex-wife and uh, ex-girlfriend did talk about how he was abusive, but the comments were made not in the context of any aggravation at the time. They were just talking about Leona's case and her disappearance. It was a buzz for a while within the, the drug community. Tell us a little bit more about uh, this money that Leona uh, might have owed. Do you have an amount? And, and who would she have owed that to? No, um, I don't have an amount. Although what I was told is that it was a large amount. What does a large, that's subjective. A large amount to me might be 10,000. A large amount to, you know, somebody else could be 1,200. I don't know. I did learn that uh, Leona did purchase her drugs from Juan uh, based on the accumulation of information I received from different sources. And that it came from either Hermiston, Oregon, which is about an hour and a half away from here and or from connections to the cartel in Salem, Oregon, which is on the west coast of Oregon, on the west side. And I was told that, you know, Leona would deal, purchase quarter ounces, half ounces of meth at a time. In the world of drug dealing, that's not a lot. But for Legrand, that would be a medium sized dealer if that information's true. Now, keep in mind, I'm telling you information that that I learned from her closest friends who were involved in the use and sell and in stuff of meth at the time. And in the late 90s, meth was the predominant illicit drug. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. I think everybody, I'm not trying to make a joke, but I think everybody hears meth and then they go to Breaking Bad and then they associate that time frame with when meth was popular. But Meth was meth was around in the in the late nineties. You're saying, yeah, it was our it was uh, cheaper. It had a better high, and it was very prevalent uh, because back then, at least in Oregon, we didn't have laws around how much Sudafed you could buy, uh, which is a key ingredient in making meth. And so we had a lot of clandestine labs in Oregon. So not only was methamphetamine coming from the super labs in Mexico. But they were also being made in clandestine labs. I mean, you could make it back in the 90s in a hotel room. If you wanted something more exotic, 
what I would say is exotic, like heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, those kinds of things, that would be a specialty order. So you would get a hold of your drug dealer and ask, hey, the next time you go to wherever it is you go to get my meth, can you also pick up a little bit of this or that? But up until 2005, methamphetamine was our predominant uh, drug. Then Oregon, I'm getting a little bit off the track here, but in 2006, Oregon made a good legislative change that made uh, Sudafed over the ca- uh, prescription rather than over the counter. Uh, it dialed it in. And in fact, in the first year after that law went into effect, there was 170 some clandestine labs that were raided and seized uh, in like 2005. And in 2007, there was only like 12. Uh, so it made a huge dent. So then, but then we started seeing another trend where people were smurfing prescription pills. I could talk about drug stuff just because I was in the drug task force for a while, but we're getting off probably what we want to talk about. The cartels that you mentioned, they, they're very prevalent and they, they move a lot of drugs in and out of Legrand. Yes. So the Mexican cartels have arterial places. Now, Legrand sits on our major interstate that goes east-west. It's Interstate 84. Drug dealers will, from Legrand, our local drug dealers, will drive to a county about an hour west of us where there's it's a hub connected to the, because of the larger Hispanic population that's tied to the Mexican cartel. So people were very fearful of the Mexican cartel, and I understand why. And I'll give you a personal uh, example of where they are legit in making threats, in using coercion, and making people scared to talk about drugs. When I was in the drug task force, which was in 2008, 9, and 10, I was able to make and prosecute a case where there was an attempted murder on one of my informants, uh, and it was connected to the drug cartel. So it's legit. And when people don't want to talk to you about their drug, I understand because they're fearful of their life. And as soon as you say Mexican cartel, um, it makes them even more fearful because they know that if it is Mexican cartel related and you owe them money, something bad could happen to you. Was Leona an informant or was she believed to to be? No, uh, I have no information um, that she was uh, at all. There was some people early on that thought, well, maybe she was put in the witness protection program uh, because she was involved pretty heavily in, in that trade here in Legrand. That's not the case. And what, if any, impact or influence is it when you're talking about the Native American culture there and how she was biracial, right? She was Caucasian and she was Native American. Uh, that's That goes into the missing and murdered indigenous people uh, epidemic. Uh, how does this all play into the conversation? Right. So, and I know that there's a narrative being said, you know, about this from Carolyn's point of view, and I'm certainly sensitive to that. What I can tell you about Leona's case is her, she had a criminal history and on her criminal history, it, it has her listed as a white person. The Department of Corrections has her listed as a white person. All of our records have her listed as a white person. We weren't even aware that she was a Native American until Carolyn told us later in the investigation that she was. Now, we would investigate all cases the same. Is there things we could have done better with this? 
case? Absolutely. It has nothing to do with Leona's race or or anything about or even that she was involved in the illicit drug trade. I'm only talking about the illicit drug trade. So you understand the difficulties that we had and the barriers we had up front. So Leona's case, you know, her uh, Native American heritage, I don't think in this particular had anything to do with her disappearance. I think it was from the information that I have and what I've looked at is purely off of her being involved in the illicit drug trade and owing somebody money. I can't find any other explanation for her disappearance yet, but I'm still open to all things. Okay. And um, were, were there any witnesses to uh, seeing her that, that day at the parking lot or anything like that? No. No. Does that ring true to you as a motive? You know, that that she owed money. Um, that this has come up in a different uh disappearance case that, that we've covered um extensively. Some people have the conclusion the dealers wouldn't have gotten the money back um if they made her go missing. Yeah, so j- how does that ring for you? Here's my thing with that. If the drug cartel thinks that she's gonna rat them out, they're gonna kill her. But do I know that she was gonna rat them out? I, I don't know that. Now, I understand, you know, what you're saying is, is why would they, if I am heard you correctly, why would they kill her if they're not going to get their money back anyway? Yeah, there's a lot in there that I don't know. I don't know how many conversations, if that's what's happened, is how many conversations, how many warnings did she get? Um, how much money did she actually owe? There's a lot of uh, unknowns there to really answer that. I have to say, I'm really impressed with the fact that you are maintaining this relationship with her daughter, Carolyn, and whether or not there's differences in the way the investigation is approached and researched and, and suspects and everything, you're still maintaining this relationship because we hear so often how that doesn't happen. Uh, when was it in your journey through this, did you decide, like, this is important to me? Well, it it would have been whenever the first time I met Carolyn or uh, corresponded with her. And I'm a sensitive person. I think I have empathy and compassion. And this is not my first missing person report that I've investigated. And I try to put myself in their shoes and look at it if I was Carolyn looking at the LaGrand Police Department, you know, are they doing everything that they should be doing to help find my mom? And that's been my approach. And I take that with any investigation that I do where, you know, there's a person crime involved. And again, I, you know, I'm I'm talking like Leona's gone. I just think that that's the most reasonable explanation 23 years later. Carolyn has been a hero for me because she's so active. She's keeping the fire going. Without her, it could get smothered. But because she's reached out to so many entities and people and trying to get resources to help me do my job, you know, kudos to her. I know that her and I won't agree on everything. But again, I will tell you that If you look at an NFL football team, an NFL football team is a professional. Uh, They practice almost every day. Uh, They do it for a living. And then they go on Sunday and they play their game. 
they don't go into the locker room after the game saying we we played that game perfect. They always do something wrong. There was a blown play somewhere. Somebody missed an assignment or something. I look at that as our police department. It is we didn't do this case perfect. But what can we do based off what we know and our experiences and our training to do better and to utilize that to find the truth in this case? Because it's not too late. And I think that that's what I like about Carolyn is she's never given up. And if she's not given up, I'm not going to give up. And, you, you know, I'm late in my career, but I still have energy for this. What's exhausting for me is just not getting any good tangible information to help me. We have ran Facebook posts, posters, our media, you know, podcasts. I've been interviewed by news agencies, you know, and I will continue to do that because maybe, maybe there's something somebody will hear or something that will just give me a little bit of information that can get me in a direction that we're going to solve this thing one way or the other. The absence of information kills me. And it's personal. It's now personal for me. I'll tell you. I'm a police officer. I'm a professional person. And but this case is personal. It's the only personal investigation that I've like where I have developed a relationship with Leona, even though she's not here. And I've done that through my relationship with Carolyn, what I've learned about Leona, the hours I put into trying to figure this out. And so it's not dead with me. And uh, I will continue to serve Carolyn until I'm not in this occupation anymore. Have there been any physical searches for Leona? Yes, there has. So one of our biggest tangible pieces of information was based off one of those inferences Juan Pena made to his ex-wife. And he inferred that whoever killed her put her body in a specific place about 35 miles from here. Our agency jumped on that right away. We elicited help from the search and rescue team, got cadaver dogs, uh, searched a huge forested area that you know didn't come up with anything. This area is also a heavily uh, used by the public area. Uh, so besides our search, you know sometimes missing persons are found by hunters, mushroomers, recreationists. Uh, we felt like that would have been the case in this particular area, but a thorough search was done. Um, I even went back and there's a pond within this this search area, and I put on waders, me and somebody else, and we waded up to our hips, you know, turning a shovel in this pond for for a day. Um, it's a stock pond, so it's not very big. And uh, <laughs> so sometimes I get some funny stuff, like I think it's funny, uh, but I follow up on all of it. I had a letter from a lady who lives in Arkansas, and she said that she's a map dowser and that I could stop looking for Leona because she found her. Um, and sent me GPS coordinates. Now, number one, I don't know what a map dowser was, so I looked it up. And the best I could translate is how people use uh, sticks to water witch to find water underground. Well, they do this over a map, and it helps them find lost items, including people. <laughs> I thought, wow, she was even specific to tell me not to search anymore and provide me with an exact GPS location. Well, 
it wasn't good information. Um, I did search that area. Um, it's on a rocky hillside, uh, impractical to take somebody up to. Uh, it would be easily to find if it's too rocky and open to dig. It's just a we looked, we searched, and in uh, that was unfounded. So we searched that area also, and then uh, we've had other little tidbits about places Leona liked to go or where Juan liked to go. And so the best we could, we kind of did some searches, but those were vague and we didn't have specifics. So uh, to answer your question, yes, we have done physical searches, just not a lot of them based on limited information. I'm super impressed that you uh, went to the location with the the dowsing, told you to go. That's incredible. I will. My promise to Carolyn was uh, I will follow up on every lead that I can as long as it's reasonable and and plausible to do so. Uh, You know, one time she read on Facebook where somebody said Leona was at the bottom of or was in a bottomless well. And up on Mount Emily. Well, Mount Emily is a huge geographic area near Legrand, And if it's a bottomless well, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to find somebody because I'll never reach the bottom. But, you know, we do get stuff like that. If if I can, if I knew where there was a well on Mount Emily, certainly I would go there. But, you know, when we get vague information like that, it's just impractical. I don't have a starting place. Thank you so much for uh, for speaking with us today. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to let you know, too, that uh, there's some people that have been helping us. I think I, the Oregon State Police has helped us on this. The Bureau of Indian Affairs has helped us on this. Uh, the FBI, Border Patrol. Uh, for a short period in 2006 to 2008, we had a cold case team that worked here. It was uh, retired officers. They worked this case a little bit. So we're getting help. Um, and I know that that's one of Carolyn's things like, you know, we need more help for police. And I'm like, yes, you know, I would love if if there was somebody I could call that just brought a team in to work these major cases like this. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure that I got them out there because, uh, you know, I appreciate they're not really stakeholders, right? They don't have a dog in the fight, but they're coming to help anyway. And so I really appreciate that. And is there a call to action? Anybody who has any information on Leona's whereabouts or information about what happened at all, where do you usually direct them? To me at the LeGrand Police Department. And you can call Lieutenant Hayes with information at 541-963-1017.